We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. We are kicking back off for the last time our sermon series, Best Sermon Ever, the Sermon on the Mount. And we've done Matthew 5, we've done Matthew 6, and now we're headed in the stretch run for Matthew chapter 7. So you're going to want to look over that. I think you're going to find a lot of great meaning that is there. So I want you to, to turn there. Um, years ago, uh, well, I don't know if you're like me, but uh, sometimes the Super Bowl is really good, right? Are you good with that? Like the three that the Broncos won, okay? Sometimes not so good, like the multiple more than that that the Broncos have lost. But we always tend, in fact, some people won't watch the game as much. They'll go to the restroom during the game just so they can be back for the commercials, right? Well, years ago, AmeriQuest Mortgage Company, I don't even know if they're still in business now, but AmeriQuest uh, Mortgage Company had two Super Bowl commercials that really caught people's attention. They had the same message, and it was this, don't judge too quickly. And maybe you'll remember this. Hopefully you can get the cobwebs out. But the first one, there was a in a convenience store, and the shopper is standing on the line at the counter and on the phone, right? And he says into the phone, you're getting robbed. And uh, what the commercial did was there were two clerks working, and they heard those words. They didn't realize he was talking to someone into his phone, and they assumed that that man was going to rob the store. And as the commercial goes, it was amazing. They squirted him with pepper spray. They took a baseball out and whacked him, and they zapped him with an electric cattle prod. Ouch! Wow, that's a misunderstanding, isn't it? And then the second commercial that came later... Uh, was a man, he's in the kitchen with a large knife. He's preparing a very romantic dinner. Okay, guys, you see how that works? Just a little hint. Try that sometime, okay? So he's, uh, he's slicing up the vegetables with a large knife, and there's a white cat in the scene, and the white cat knocks the pan of his bubbly tomato sauce all over the place, onto the floor, and then the cat falls into the mess. And so the man picks up this tomato-splattered cat in one hand, and he has the knife in his other hand, and the wife comes home and opens the door, and she sees him holding the cat, dripping with red sauce in one hand, the large knife in the other, and the scene is unmistakably terrifying as she assumes the worst has happened to her cat. I don't know if you remember those, but you can Google them and look them up, AmeriQuest Mortgage Company. Well, why would they have those two commercials? Well, because... The idea is don't judge too quickly. The other idea, though, is things aren't always as they appear. Would that make sense? When you're holding a cat with tomato, not blood, all right? Yeah, they don't, they're not always as they appear. And I think this passage, by the way, this sermon is for me today. Can I just get that out of the way? My wife would agree with that. She would second that motion. It's for me. Maybe it's not for you, but it's for me. I need to hear what we're looking at today because... Judging can be an issue, okay? So this sermon is for your pastor. So take a deep breath, relax, and if it falls in your lap, know you're in good company. Things aren't always as they appear at first. In fact, I've observed in my life and in others that Christians can make fools out of ourselves when we don't have all the facts. Did you know that? But it gets worse. Christians can also make fools out of ourselves when we have the same problem. 
in our life that we are condemning or that we are judging. So we want to think about that for a minute. You noticed, probably, I hope it caught your attention, the sermon title, Yardsticks and Boomerangs. Well, I brought a yardstick, okay, you see it? This is a really old one from our house. Got some paint on it, but what do we use a yardstick for? To measure, right? We're, we're good at measuring things. I could have done a, a tape measure, but yardstick is, is more interesting, especially for the younger ones out there. It's a yardstick. It's like a big ruler, okay? You don't know what it is, but that's what it is. Yes, we use it to measure. And what's interesting is we, as, as Christians and humans, we are always measuring things even when we don't think that we are. And this passage speaks to that, measuring, okay? So I want you to think about that for a minute. Now, I also have a boomerang. Thank you for all that volunteered. I think Leslie was first. So I've been practicing with this thing. Are you ready? I'm going. Okay, Barbara's covering up. I'm serious. Watch, it's going to come back to me. Are you ready? I've been practicing. Sorry, Leslie, but the only way I can do is lick my finger to get it right. Okay, here we go. Ready? As soon as I did that, it would go right down about the fourth row and take someone out, and then we'd have security in here, medical personnel, and I'd be in trouble. But what's a boomerang supposed to do? Yeah, if I would have done it, it might have come back to me, and I would have watched it and come around here and hit me right in the back of the head. And that's what our measurements do sometimes. Sometimes our measurements backfire on us, and they're like a boomerang because we haven't dealt with our own life, and they come back around, and they smack us right in the back of the head, and it's a problem. You see, here's an alliteration for you. We have a problem with planks in our pupils. If you've read the passage, you know what I'm talking about, and we're going to take a look at it. In the best sermon ever, we've looked at, uh, in chapter 5, we've looked at Jesus' teaching about our relationship to God. In Matthew chapter 6, we've looked at our relationship to things. And now it gets personal. Matthew chapter 7, we're really looking at our relationship with other people. And that's just how it is. Let's look at Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For with the judgment you use, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and look, there's a log in your eye. Hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Let's pray. God, reveal to us your truths, your principles, what you want to use in our life through the teaching of Jesus. Open up our hearts and minds and eyes and ears that we might be different when we leave this place because of your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So let's jump in. We've got quite a few points. Don't worry, some of them are real short, but the first one is really important, and it's long. I don't usually make points this long, but it's the very beginning of the uh, passage that we're in, and it's this. Let's get the meaning of the word out of the way. Of many passages in the Bible, this is one of the most that I think sometimes is misunderstood or the meaning gets wrong, okay? It starts right at the beginning with three words. Do not judge. Jesus cuts to the chase 
And what's interesting, and you'll hear me talk about that throughout the sermon, we get an English word from this word. And the English word we get from this word is the word critic. Have you ever heard of that word? Do you live? No, I didn't. I wasn't going to say, do you live with someone? You ever worked with someone who's a critic? You ever been in a club or an organization with someone who's a critic? You ever been in a church with, oh, we're not going to go there, aren't we? We get our word from that. Do not judge. We get our word critic from it. So let's look at what it does not mean and what it means. Now, we can spend a lot of time. We're just going to go briefly. But let's, first of all, look at what it does not mean. Here's a couple things that I've heard people say, and they're interpreting incorrectly. This is what it does not mean. It's not a prohibition against speaking against evil, sin, and the like. Are you catching me? When it says, do not judge, it is not saying, oh, you can never speak against evil, sin, and the like. Those who would use this text to condemn others for speaking against this stuff in themselves, they're actually making a judgment. You see how that doesn't work? Okay, think about it for a minute. Secondly, it does not mean prohibiting all judging, or maybe a better word would be discernment, of what is right and wrong. Let's just think about some examples. Abortion providers. Do not judge does not mean that we cannot speak against that or that we cannot have discernment that that is wrong because God believes and has taught us in his word the sanctity of life from conception until you're done with this life, right? I thought I'd get an amen when I did that. Yeah, that, that, you're not judging when you say that's wrong. That's not right. That's not what God's word teaches. How about getting drunk? That's another one. It's not prohibiting from, from discerning that that's not what we should be doing. Or adultery. Or drug use. Do you see where I'm going? We could go on and on and on with that. In fact, I find this interesting that judging, or as some people like to call it, fruit inspecting, of false prophets is mentioned as soon as verse 15 and 16 in this chapter. Look down at verse 15 and 16. We'll get to that in a few weeks. But, but look at this. And tell me there's not discernment here. Beware or watch of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. Look at verse 16. You recognize them by their what? Their fruit, their actions. Okay? So we see it doesn't mean some of the things that some of our touchy-feely uh, brothers and sisters have said that this means. In fact, the word judge interesting word it has a lot of nuances to it it can range from ordinary discernment or evaluation that's Luke 743 it can even speak to judicial litigation Matthew 540 we saw that in the Sermon on the Mount already it can be the assignment of eternal reward Matthew 1928 and here's two more that it can speak towards the assertion of guilt it's, that word is used for that John 751 and a definite determination of a person's fate. That's uh, John 5.22 and 8.16. So I think we need to take a look at these last two nuances or distinctions that are here because they're in view here. Jesus, I believe, is, is warning his disciples against setting themselves over others, number one. Did you catch that? Do not judge. Be careful about setting yourself over others. And secondly, be careful not to make a pronouncement 
of their guilt before God. Don't be God. Okay? Here is the warning against being a critic who does this. This word implies this. Be careful now. A warning against being a critic who judges harshly, self-righteously, or mercilessly. I knew I'd get that word out. Now you think about that, parent. Let me just stop for a minute. There's been times in our lives, most parents, where we were a little merciless with that child, that family member. And we kept hounding and picking, right? We kept doing that. Uh, this, this, do not judge. This is, applies right to that. That's why in Scripture, guys, as fathers, we get that part of a verse that says what? Do not exasperate your children. Wow. Okay? So it's that idea of doing this. The, the person, it's the person who makes oneself the judge of another, seizing the place of God as judge, not one who speaks against sin, not one who discerns sin. So that leads us already into what does it mean? Do not judge. Well, the word simply here can mean, defined simply, to criticize, condemn, or censor. It gives a picture of being one of fault finding, of being picky. It is the habit of critical and ceaseless criticism. So you see, this is different from the moral judgments, the value judgments that we must make as followers of Jesus. If you don't believe that we're supposed to make moral and value judgments, especially with each other, just read 1 Corinthians 5. It's not that long of a chapter. It talks about how we're supposed to deal with other people. It's got church discipline in there even. It's got a lot of things in there. And so, yes, we're supposed to do that, okay? So, furthermore, do not judge. It is the, hype, uh, the hypocritical judgment that focuses on the faults of others while excusing one's own sin. Let me just focus on the faults of that God so I don't have to worry about even perhaps excuse my sin, my shortcomings with the Lord. But we'll get to more of that in a minute. So I want you to ponder this for a minute. Do not judge what it does not mean, what it means. I want you to think about the number five. Everybody put your hand up today. Go like this. If you're missing a finger, you might have to add one in there. Can everybody do that? You just need one hand. All right. Good thing I didn't say 20. We'd have to take our shoes off. All right. Let's think about five for a minute. I want you to think about, do not judge and think about fives. Because uh, in the, we started the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. Do you remember that? So the warning about judging here is the reverse of the positive blessing that Jesus taught in the fifth beatitude. Maybe you don't remember the fifth one or have it memorized, but it's Matthew 5, 7, and it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Do you see how this is kind of the opposite of that? And then there's another five. This warning that Jesus is giving, do not judge also reiterates something in the Lord's Prayer. It's the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew 6, verse 12, you'll know it. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. So think five right there, and you see this is the reverse of those things. We might summarize it in this way. If you were going to jot down a sentence, you might jot this down. True disciples exhibit mercy... True disciples exhibit mercy toward 
one another, not judgment. And we've already talked, though, about that. that but it doesn't mean you can't speak against sin or evil, but it's the way in which we do things. True disciples exhibit mercy toward one another, not judgment. So let's look at a few principles today. In the second part of verse 1, we see principle number 1, and it's simply this. We will be judged. Look at verse 1 again. Do not judge so that you, what? Won't be judged. Clearly, there's a truth here. There's a principle that we need to see. We will be judged. And the truth is this. God will judge such a person. Now, we're not necessarily talking about the lost person right now. We're talking about the person who is doing this kind of judgment or criticism. And the truth is God will judge such a person. In fact, what's used here is what we call the divine passive. It's the phrase, be judged. It refers to God as the agent of the action. God's going to be the agent. God's going to be the one that acts upon this, a divine passage. He is the judge. With this in mind, we should really take heed that we should allow God to be the judge and let us not try to play God. Now, I know none of you have ever tried to play God. You look, you're in here, you're dressed, and you're looking at me with your spiritual eyes right now. I see right through them because I have those too. Of course, there are times, when, if you've been a Christian for more than a day, there's times in our lives where what have we done? We tried to be God, haven't we? We'll just take care of this. God, I got an idea. We'll just take care of that. We need to be careful not to try to play God. To be quick to call others to account is to invite God to call us to account. How's that one? Ouch. So this divine passage, the idea of be judged, this tense of judged signifies something here. It's a once and for all final judgment. So don't play God. Now think about the context here. Think about those religious leaders of Jesus' day. Don't play God like the religious leaders of Jesus' day did by contemning others. Do you, you remember the Pharisees, don't you? It wasn't just the Ten Commandments and that. You remember it was 600 and something, I can't remember right now, extra laws that they invented and put in. And the ones that really speak to us are the Sabbath laws, right? You can't do that. I mean, it was like, man, I only could take a certain amount of steps. That's not what God's law says, but they had done all that. They're playing God. They're condemning others. In fact, they condemned Jesus, did they not? Jesus healed on the Sabbath, and they condemned him they were fired up because he broke one of their laws okay realize instead that we'll be judged when we judge in this way when we criticize in this way it's a simple truth so that was the easy one principle number one let's look at verse two and see principle number two not we will be judged but we are being judged look at verse two for with the judgment you use you will be judged and with the measure you use it will be measured to you now have you heard of the principle of reciprocity it's been around for a while I I find this funny social psychology has developed what we call the principle of reciprocity I can't say that word Recip help me out thank you you're listening right yeah it's the idea is this that we return 
what we have received. What's been given to us, we return it. We send it back here in the way of judgment. Now, now that's funny to me that social psycho psychology has come up with this principle because many, many, many years ago, this principle is stated in the Bible. For with the judgment you use, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So there it is, and we see it. So we should realize this, that we are being judged. And I think something that will help, there's a parallel passage. Uh, in a lot of the Sermon on the Mount, we have a parallel passage. And I want to read the parallel passage because I think it gives a little commentary to what we're talking about right here. You might want to jot it down. It's Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, verses 37 and 38. And here's what Dr. Luke records under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. And some of you will remember this. It's a good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Do you see when we put verse 2 together with 37 and 38 of Luke, we get just a vivid picture of what the Lord is teaching us here. As a Christian judges, he is judged. As he condemns, he is condemned. As he is unforgiving, he is not forgiven. But as he is generous, generosity is poured back on him by the measure in which he gave. So let's remember the context here. We're talking about, Jesus is not talking about money or something else right here. What's he talking about? He's talking about a warning against setting ourselves over others and making a pronouncement of their guilt before God. As in, we are going to go ahead and be the judge to be God here. And I, one more thing in this principle. Let me submit to you one verse that's powerful. It's Romans chapter 2 verse 1 you'll remember Romans chapter 2 what a great verse right those first couple chapters of Romans where Paul is setting up that that everyone's a sinner uh, there's there's no excuse all these things and we get to Romans 2 1 and it says this therefore referring back to the gospel to salvation to sin in chapter 1 therefore any one of you who judges is without excuse for when you judge another you condemn yourself since you, the judge, do the same things. Now, how did Paul know that? How's he getting in my business? How does he? Because Paul was a Christian just like the rest of us. He was not perfect. He was a sinner, right? He understood what it means to be careful about judging because I've done the same things. Or maybe there's something I need to deal with in my life. The Lord is wanting to work in my life, but I'm too busy out there criticizing all these other ones. Romans 2.1. It's a good one to remember and to think about. Let's move on. Verses 3 through 5, we see another principle. And it's this. We must see clearly... We must see clearly to help others. You see, the criticizer fails to examine himself and is thus inconsistent in his judgment and not helpful to others. Can you see that? The, the critic is not taking a look at his life, and so therefore, by nature, whatever judgment he comes up with, 
is not going to be consistent because he has not dealt with his life first. And it's not going to be helpful to others. Now you picture, don't say it out loud, but you picture that person that you, you've known, maybe not right now, but throughout your life, that has that overly critical spirit. Can you picture it? Unfortunately, some are going all the way back to childhood or maybe to a certain work situation that you got out of or a school situation or whatever it might be. And just to think about that, was it helpful to you and me? No, it is not helpful. If anything, it is hurtful. So let's look at verses 3 through 5. A couple uh, tangible pieces of wood, for lack of a better term, Look at verse 3 and 4. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and look, there's a log in your own eye. Very strong words that Jesus is teaching here. So let's start with the speck. Interesting word. It means more than dust. It means a piece of dried wood or chaff. Or maybe this will help you guys out. It could mean a splinter. Ever had a splinter? It's a very small particle that irritates. You got the idea of a speck? Okay. And you think about how Jesus used the eye. That's a very sensitive piece of the human body, is it not? You ever been poked in the eye? I've seen NFL defensive linemen, 6'6", 335", fall to the ground writhing in pain and being drug off not because of an ACL or anything else a crack back block or whatever it was because they got poked in the eye and they wear face masks to kind of help with that okay Jesus intentionally uses this word I believe to take issue from the brother take away the issue from the brother or sister that we are criticizing yet still noting it is an irritant he's not saying it's not an irritant he's saying hey I want to, uh, don't worry about them for a minute. You worry about yourself and this speck, this small particle, maybe this splinter or chaff or wood that irritates. And then he goes on to say, okay, they have that, but you have a log in your, now this word is good. You have a log in your eye. Now, obviously, you can't have a log in your eye, okay? But Jesus is using hyperbole here to make a great point as he is the master teacher. Do you know what that word means? It is this. It's a log on which the house rests. Is that going to be a splinter? No. It also means this. A joist, a rafter, a pole sticking out grotesquely. You can pick any of those, but you can see this is a big deal we're talking about. Think about the foundation of a house. Think about joists. Some of y'all have two-story houses. Your joists better be good, right? They better be big. They better be strong. Or rafters, okay? That's what this is. He's saying, you're worried about that little speck, that small particle, when you have a pole sticking out grotesquely, a rafter, a joist out of your eye. Now, that's crazy. I believe, and some scholars believe, they probably knew what he was talking about. Many would say that Jesus is sharing a proverb of the day, and he's quoting that. It's like we might say, this is A.T. Robertson, who's a great uh, Greek scholar of yesteryear, wonderful. He would say that it's kind of like what we would say today, people in glass houses throwing stones. 
I mean, somebody's like, what are, you, what are you talking about? We know what that proverb means, don't we? We know exactly what it means if we use it, okay? Clearly, Jesus is highlighting. Jesus is calling right now. I hear the phone. <laughs> Clearly, Jesus is highlighting the issue not on that person I want to criticize, but on the criticizer's sin. Are you with me? Are you staying with me so far? No one's got up and left. That's good. We move to verse 5, and it gets rough. Starts out with emphatic declaration, exclamation point. Do you see it? Hypocrite. We could assume in the English language, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The, the, there's a great hypocrisy here, and Jesus calls it out. And can I ask you a question today? It's a question I've asked myself before. Why is it that Christians have a tendency sometimes to worry about what everyone else is doing without considering what they are doing themselves? Have you noticed that? Man, you will watch Fox News, or you will read a news article, or you will be talking with one of your friends in your Sunday school class or in the hallway, and man, you are concerned with what everyone else is doing, and perhaps, maybe you have, but perhaps not, you haven't been concerned with what you've been doing yourself. Hmm. Wow. Wow, and I think Jesus speaks to this. It's obviously clear to him and all of his hearers because he says, hypocrite. The picture of hypocrisy that Jesus is painting here, it's absolutely as ridiculous and sarcastic as he can possibly be. Can you see this? Can you see how he's talking about log and speck and you hypocrite, okay? This type of hypocrisy that he is calling out is self-righteousness. And I want to tell you something right now. Self-righteousness is one of the great cancers that hits Christians. And I want to tell you something, church. Self-righteousness is a cancer that could invade our church if we are not careful. Are you aware of that? I am not better than the other person because I was born in Houston, Texas. I know some of you Texans would say that. Listen, I got out of there as quick as I can. By two, I was gone. Okay? I am not better than that person because I was born in these here United States of America. I'm not. I'm not better because, of, you see, we could go on and on. And it's easy for us to be self-righteous. Or I'm really not even better than that person because God has saved me and I've repented. Because I'm still what? I'm a sinner. Yes, I'm a sinner saved by grace. It's just that God has touched me and saved me, and maybe that person has not had that yet. So let us be careful about self-righteousness. You see, the hypocrite claims to be both lawgiver and judge, claiming authority that belongs only to the Lord. I think King David is a good example. Do you remember King David? Do you remember the problem? Do you remember Bathsheba? Do you remember the adultery? Do you remember Bathsheba had one husband a faithful serving uh, soldier of King David. His name was Uriah. Do you remember that? And it got pushed to shove, and Uriah is murdered. And all of a sudden, later on, the prophet Nathan shows up. Do you remember that in King David's life? And he goes through this story about this little lamb that someone has. And this guy has all this, but he's going to sacrifice, going to take that family, that person's lamb, away and do it and David's reaction is what he is furious how could that guy do that let me deal with that guy and that's when Nathan points his prophetic finger at him and he says 
King David, you are that man. It's easy to be self-righteous. It's easy to look at what someone else is doing than what we are doing or not doing. So think about that for a minute. Hypocrisy. Oh, we're not done yet. We all have work to do in the area of hypocrisy. I want you to consider some verses. Now, I could have listed about 20 or 25. We don't have time, but let me list for you five here. You might want to jot them down. Romans 3.10 says this. As it is written, and quotes the Old Testament, there is no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23, we know that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 John 1.8, it comes before 1 John 1.9. We forget it's there, but it's there, and it says this. If we say we have no sin, self-righteousness, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Galatians 6.3, do you remember when we studied Galatians? For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let me just stop for a minute. Are you looking for a certain position? Are you looking for a certain powerful thing? Are you looking for, if I just had this, everything? No, don't do that. Instead, be humble and realize we're nothing without the Lord. And if we think we're something, we're deceiving ourselves. And then James 1.26. If anyone thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue then his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Why did I put that verse in there? Because lots of time, this type of judging, this criticism, this being a critic that happens, involve, the weapon of choice is not a boomerang or a yardstick. It is the words that we use. Okay. It's going to get better. Are you ready? Wow, we're all hypocrites. Would you agree with that? Now, some of us are worse than others. But wait, did I just do a judgment thing there? Okay. I know in my life, it's there and I'm sure in your life it's there but look at verse 5 see clearly do you see that seeing clearly instead of doing what Jesus is saying don't do here how about we see clearly it's interesting because it says first take the log out of your eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye it's an interesting phrase, see clearly. It's only found here in Luke 6 and Mark 8, just three places. And it means to gaze at. Now, we get that, but it's deeper than that. It means more than just see clearly to gaze at. It means to look through. It means to penetrate in contrast. Do you see that? There's a lot more to it than just looking. And I want to tell you that there is a cure to this kind of judging or criticizing there's a cure to this kind of hypocrisy aren't you grateful that the Lord Jesus doesn't leave them hanging and leave us hanging there's a cure and it's this it's right there in verse 5 did you see it we must deal with the log in our own eye first well what does that mean log we must deal with the sin in our life first we must deal with whatever issue that we should be dealing with in our life first in our own eye how could we say that we need to get right with God then we will be able to be an effective follower of Jesus then we will actually be able to help our brothers and sisters with the sin and the issues with which they're dealing listen I'm the lead pastor okay there's no two ways around it that's who I am it's my vocation it's also my calling but I'm going to tell you what, 
I need to deal with the sin in my life before I start helping. And a lot of people want help. And a lot of people want advice. And maybe sometime if I haven't fired back and emailed to you right away or haven't been able to meet with you, maybe I'm dealing with something in my life. Did you ever think about that? Maybe I'm trying to get my personal house in order before I try to help you get your personal house in order. And I think we would do better and we'd actually be able to help more when we worked on that. You see, we are to get our lives right so that we can help others who are struggling. Did you catch that? It doesn't say help others who are struggling. It, we need to get our lives right and then we can help others who are struggling. It's amazing in how we want to just jump in and try to help when we really need to deal with the same thing perhaps in our own lives. We are not to view the faults of others. We are not to kick them when they're down. We're not to be cruel. Okay? We as believers, we do have the responsibility to help others. We do have the responsibility, especially to help others repent of sin, right? We, we, we're called the Great Commission to share the gospel, to make disciples of all people, of all nations. But it's after first dealing with our own serious sins, with our own issues. I've seen it happen just a few times in my life. I've seen the freedom that comes from a person, and they're always an older person, that after decades, hear me, church, it could be you today, that after decades they finally deal with a serious sin or an issue in their life. They have gone decades and decades and never dealt with it. And I firmly believe this morning there's some people that are watching online, there's some people right in this room that you have really, truly not dealt with something that you may have hung on to for years. Deal with it. Don't be a hypocrite. What's the great thing? Not just the freedom that will come in your life, but then you will truly be able to help others with what's going on in their life. So as we get close, to, I said close, to wrapping up the sermon, let's ask the question, why? Why did Jesus include this in the best sermon ever? Well, let's remember the context. Do you remember the scribes and the Pharisees? They were guilty of exercising a false judgment in a number of ways. First of all, a false judgment about themselves. Look at me. About other people. Look at you. And even about the Lord. Lord, let me add to this. You weren't clear enough. Let me add some things in, okay? So here's the context. This is why Jesus includes this in the best sermon ever because of their false righteousness and their false righteousness required a response so I would say to you today church let us be known for something besides judgment I didn't get I thought I might get amen man you, did you read the news this morning shame on you before you come to church let us be a church that is known for something besides judgment let us be a church that is known for something besides Criticism. I gave you another chance. It's pretty quiet. I know we're not an amening church, but man, if I was in a certain church, they'd be going, Hallelujah, amen, okay? We need to be known for something different than just what we're against. Why? Let me tell you what criticism done, does. And if any of these speak into your life, jot them down and you ponder them. First of all, criticism boosts our own self-image. You understand that? Think about it for a minute. 
Pointing out someone else's failure makes us seem a little better, at least in our own eyes. It can add to our own pride, ego, and self-image. Criticism can boost our self-image. I firmly believe some people judge and criticize in this way just because they don't want to deal with something. They make look, I'm not like that lady. Sorry, pointed right at you. I apologize. I'm not like that guy. Okay? Here's another one. I hate to say it, but criticism is often enjoyed. Some people think that's their job. See, there's a tendency in human nature, if God is not, not ruling and on the throne of our life, there's a tendency to take pleasure in hearing and sharing bad news and shortcomings. Not our shortcomings, but others. In fact, the Bible calls that something. You know what, it, what the Bible calls that? Starts with a G, gossip. It's easy to criticize or to talk about that. Another one, criticism makes us feel that our own lives are better than the person who failed. You've got to really be careful with that. Well, I've not done that, but they did that, so they have failed. Well, what does that mean? It means uh, I've got to be careful that I don't feel the morality or the behavior of mine to be so superior because I criticize someone who may have failed. Here's another one. Criticism, help, criticism helps us justify the decisions we have made and the things we have done throughout our lives. Man, is that a big one. Instead of dealing with the sin in my life, with the issues in my life, instead of truly not just confessing but repenting of them, when I don't do that, I'm justifying, oh, it wasn't that bad. You know, I wasn't that bad because I wasn't like that guy. Hmm. We rationalize, don't we, our decisions and our actions by pointing to the failures of others. Man, I want to remember, if I'm pointing, it's pointing right back at me, the boomerang, okay? Hmm. How about this one? Criticism points out to our friends how strong we are. Man, if I've seen it anywhere, I've seen it in the church more than I've seen it in other organizations. Criticism can give us good feelings, right, because of our religious beliefs, our strong lives, and they're proven. Fundamentalism. There's nothing wrong with the fundamentals, but there's a problem with fundamentalism because it's like, well, I dress this way. I look this way. I read my Bible every morning, on and on and on. So let me go ahead and criticize those that don't, and let me remind everyone that I'm doing that, okay? Some of y'all want me to shave my face. Not going to happen. Don't criticize. Don't do it. You're not more religious or stronger because of that. You have a different preference, or you were brought up in a different way. You see how we could go on and on with that? That was a silly thing, but we could go on and on with that, okay? How is it proven? How, how, do, we, how do critics pr prove their beliefs in their strong lives, quote-unquote, by their brother or sister's failure? Mm, don't do the comparison game. And then finally, criticism is, a, criticism is an outlet for hurt and revenge. Well, what does that mean? Well, I feel like he really deserves that. She really deserves that. And subconsciously, maybe consciously even, we think, well, he hurt me, so he deserves to hurt too. She hurt me, she deserves to feel the hurt as well. So we criticize the person who has failed. Now, I started off this morning by saying this is a sermon for me, okay? 
It is. There's grief in my life over the many times that I have judged in this way. The many times I have criticized in this way. The many opportunities that the Lord has given me not to just state what I'm against, but what I'm for. The Lord, His gospel, His rescue plan. Do you see how the gospel can diffuse most situations and can help us not to be hypocritical and can help us not to be these kind of critics. So I pray that you would consider this with an open heart today. I pray that you would. And let me say this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16 If that has not been appropriated in your life, if you have not run from where you're going in your sin and run to God, the word is repentance, and confessed and say, God, I'm, I'm tired of doing it my own way. Jesus, would you forgive me? You can forgive me. You died on the cross for my sin. Please save me. Please be the boss, the Lord of my life. If that hasn't happened in your life, this doesn't matter. Jesus' teaching does not matter because you do not have a relationship with Jesus until that has occurred, until God has saved you. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift from God so that no one can boast. Don't worry about criticizing. Don't worry about jumping through hoops, doing certain good works. You must turn and run to Jesus and he can miraculously and willingly save you. And then you're like a lot of us. You're still a sinner, but you're saved by God's grace. And maybe as we deal with our stuff, we can help others. But none of this matters until you get to that point. Is that your case today? Have you been searching? Are you wondering, why am I here today? Why have I been coming here? Maybe God is trying to do that work in your life. We would love to pray with you and talk with you about that. And Christian, if you know that you know that you know the assurance of your salvation, how we do it? Look deeper into those three words, do not judge, and realize the depth of Jesus' teaching. And examine yourself, just as I have, in this time of response. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for our time together today. I simply pray and ask that during these few moments right now, we would evaluate we would let you speak directly into our lives and we would make adjustments that you want us to make. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.